Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, Episode 6, where we're traveling to 1948 and the sixth winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Walter Piston, for his third symphony. Okay, Dave, we finished Ives, which you knew a lot about, so Mm -hmm. what about Walter Piston? Walter Piston, well, I think I first encountered him seeing his name on a textbook, because, and we're going to talk about this in our, he's one of our first first double winner, I believe. Uh, We'll talk about his theory contributions, which are great, actually, and really important to, even today, the way that students study theory. But in terms of his music, I really didn't know much about him. I knew he taught at Harvard. He was the teacher of many students uh, who are famous that we're going to talk about. But in terms of the music, boy, I I don't think I knew one piece. I mean, I'd heard of some, like The Incredible Flutist is the one that gets discussed a lot. But other than that, not much. So just more of a teacher and a pedagogue than a composer. So you knew more than I knew. Oh, okay. Well, I come across his name in undergraduate classes. It's one of those... And then there was Walter Piston. It was one of those kind of situations. But I maybe once or twice I'd heard his music mm-hmm. on a chamber concert, and that's about it. So this was, um, of the composers, it really, he's like Leo Sowerby to me, except I actually knew this <laughs> name. <laughs> Leo Sowerby I'd never heard of when we no. began talking about him. I had heard of Walter Piston. I knew his importance, but um, I'd never read his theory book. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew him, like you said, as a pedagogue, and I knew that he was an important composer mid-century. Um, and I knew he was connected with the whole Copeland, um, Virgil Thompson, who we'll talk about next time, these composers who go over to France to study. So yes. he was in that list of composers for me, but that's about, he was just a name in a book for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's definitely a, a New Englander through and through and very much a product of the Northeast. And that, you know, most of our winners have been that so far, been very East Coast or related to the East Coast. Uh, but I think, like I said, it's more of more of the teacher and and pedagogue and so that's kind of how he's remembered nowadays yeah. and so that's why it's kind of interesting that he his currency was so high at this time in 1848 that he was able to win and then he went won a couple of years later with his seventh symphony so he must have been some doing something right i mean i think of him as a neoclassic composer and someone who's kind of a traditionalist but from all accounts a great teacher and really influential on American music at the time. So just another one. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) Well, let's get started talking about uh, the piece and Walter Piston. So who was Walter Piston? (laughs) This is the the (laughs) great uh, question. I'm going to start with a nice quote from Nicholas Lenimsky, great uh, conductor and writer and uh, commentator on American music. 1945, so a few years before this award, he writes... In the constellation of modern American composers, Walter Piston has now reached stardom of the first magnitude. He has not exploded into stellar prominence like a surprising nova, but took his place inconspicuously without passing through the inevitable stage of musical exhibitionism or futuristic eccentricity. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's high praise. That's really high praise. Yeah, especially from Slonimsky, who was kind of a, uh, eccentric of, in his own way. Uh, somebody like Piston is more of a like he, traditionalist, I guess you could say. Or, or yeah. and so far, the composers I think we've seen have all been of that ilk. 
they've more or less been, except for Ives maybe, but the, but the piece that won was a, very a pretty traditional, traditional conservative type piece. So um, he really, by 1945, Piston was really a big deal. And part of it was, I think, because he said he, he was the first well-known Nadia Boulanger student I believe, and wasn't he? He was after Copeland. Oh, oh, okay. He's right there at the very beginning. So, and I think this is one of the things that I like that quote from Slonimsky because he says he doesn't explode like a supernova. It's one of these, he's one of those people who shows up to work every day. Yes, a work a day. Right, Mm -hmm. does the job, does an exceptional job uh, in his teaching and in his composition, and has kind of done so for a long time. So uh, we can talk about his training. He's largely Mm self-taught. So when he's in his 20s, he goes to Paris, France, and he hooks up with Nadie Boulanger, who we talked a little bit about with Copeland, but this superstar teacher of American composers who helped them find kind of an American voice, although she was a French teacher. And so became in that constellation of people who uh, appreciated Stravinsky and the kind of neoclassicism, the bringing back of older compositional styles, and comes to the United States, uh, returns in uh, when he's, what, 25, 26, and starts teaching at Harvard. Yeah. And stays there until he dies. I mean, <laughs> until he dies, he retires from Harvard. But that, it's a fairly common story for most ordinary people. You get a job and you stick the job throughout the job throughout the rest of your life. But yeah, here's someone who's able to do that at a super high level. Yeah, and, and the fact that he didn't get a degree until he was 30 and was pretty much a late bloomer in music. So he wasn't precocious right away. He was going to be a draftsman and an artist. And apparently from all accounts was a very good artist and and did well. Uh, But it just shows how things were so, are so different now. You could never get a job teaching at Harvard without an advanced degree or without a serious amount of, of experience. So it was a very different time then and self-taught and yeah, I, I, I guess obviously very, accomplished and precocious in his own way to be that successful and to, to land that job. Well, and then from that job, teaches a huge constellation of American yeah. composers, super important American composers, uh, people like Leonard Bernstein, mm-hmm. one of the most important figures in American music in the mid-century, um, Elliot Carter, Irving Fine, John Harbison, Daniel Pinkham, Frederick Jevsky, Harold Shapiro. I mean, all these are names that some of them are Pulitzer winners later on, like Elliot yeah. Carter. Yeah, yeah. Um, Almost all of them have an impact on American composition in some way, and they don't sound a thing alike. There's yeah. not like a piston sound to his students. No, but of that group, do you think of any of them as kind of following him at all, or at least in some of the forms? Or I mean, I, I, the, I, th- I hear a little Bernstein. Like yeah, I, I can do. Hear piston I, and I think once we get into the Third Symphony, there's yeah. parts. But in to me, the things that I hear in Piston that I hear in Bernstein are also things I hear in Copeland. Mm. So I wonder if it's more the right. Boulanger touch. Yeah, <laughs> that that's a good point. Yeah. The kind of uh, the polish that you get with a Boulanger student, mm-hmm. um, and the interest in the the rhythmic interest that she pushed on a lot of her students in terms of what makes American music unique. And Copeland talks about this. It's right. It's the tension between steady state and syncopation, mm-hmm. and we get that a lot here in this Third Symphony. Yeah, that's an interesting point. There's some great articles, too, that we're going to link to. One is a very long, this is a very interesting, long article by Elliot Carter in Musical Quarterly from 1946, where he is sort of like an overview of Piston's life and works. A 25-page article about his teacher. Yeah, yeah. He he, he just goes on and on. This is is his quote, so it's almost as good as the Slonowski. 
Uh, Carter says, in the whole field of contemporary music, Walter Piston occupies an important position. He has summed up the tendencies of the past 20 years, both here and in Europe, and given them broad and masterful expression. Wow. I mean, a big deal. A big deal. And someone, like we said at the outset of this episode, someone we almost never hear of. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can see the influence he has is, I think, more through his students. I think absolutely. Being a teacher, working at Harvard, of course, the fact that you're teaching at Harvard means you are automatically going to be elevated and well-known. And yeah, uh, it's very interesting to see what happens to these people. I think part of the problem with him is also that he's been tagged as a very academic composer because of his affiliation with Harvard and the East Coast. And so people hear his music and they think it's dry and kind of academic well he's also not an innovator no right 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 so it's fairly tonal a lot of times he's he's doing what other composers have done he's not going in and creating new systems or doing brand new things with them he's he's playing in other people's sandboxes he's doing so really well i mean copeland looked at him and said he's a great craftsman yes but that's kind of damning with faint praise (laughs) (laughs) i mean to say he's a great craftsman but he's yeah i mean how is it as expression but i think that's kind of the the image that we have popularly of, of him now mm-hmm. is he was good at what he did, showed up to work every day, yeah, yeah. and, you know, had a great life. But And the composers we remember or revere tend to be, with some exceptions, tend to be more of the composers who push or... They tend to be the Charles the, Ives. Yeah, yeah, well, for example, <laughs> yeah, I was going to go back to Beethoven and people like that, but, but just the, yeah, push things a little bit and have a greater vision and not just... I mean, Mozart is sort of sometimes seen that way as kind of a... Well, but even the composers we've seen with the Pulitzer so far, so we can go back and talk about Schumann, has the same kind of profile. Yeah, very true. Um, Academic. Academic. Good craftsman. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing with Sowerby. I mean, the two that that we've talked about that their music still stands today are Copeland and Ives, and they're both seen as innovators. Yeah, that's true. In different ways. That's true. So there's that there, that thesis is uh, coming true. It's coming true. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about this piece. Telling the story. Piston said that when he returned from France, he said, I felt pretty gloomy about the situation of the composer in America. (laughs) I knew conductors were not interested in what we composers were doing, so I was writing only chamber music. And this is key for this particular piece. He says, Kusavisky asked to see me, and he asked, why you no write for orchestra? (laughs) I said, because nobody would play it. And he said, write, and I will play. So I wrote... And he played. And there, thus began an affiliation with the Boston Symphony. And uh, they premiered a bunch of his orchestral music. And later on, I found out that he had a falling out after Kusevitsky retired or died. I don't know which. But he, he kind of had a falling out after that and didn't have his works played anymore. But, yeah, it was a big deal. And so the Kusevitsky Foundation commissioned this piece, the Third Symphony. He started it in 1946 and finished in 1947. Premiered in January 1948 by the BSO with Kusevitsky. And here's the concert. Uh, here's the, the pieces on it. We have, Pist- this was the first piece, so Piston Symphony Number no. 3, and it said first performance. Then the Prokofiev Violin Concerto Number no. 1. That seems like a pretty good fit to it have does. another neoclassic composer. And then intermission. And then, hey, Brahms Second Symphony right after that. So that's that's a good 
a pretty good concert. Yeah. It's a pretty meaty concert. Pretty meaty. Yeah. Very no no weak kind of pieces on there at all. Well, no light kind of fluffy pieces. No that's, overture that's or something. Right. No, not at all. Three full multi movement pieces. So. Yeah, what did the jury say about this piece? Well, I think first we have to ask who was the jury because we begin to see ah. some familiar names come up, and they're familiar names, of course, this time again. Yes, so we have the jury report from 1948, and this is addressed to Dean Carl Ackerman of journalism at Columbia. The jury was Chalmers Clifton. Yeah, of course, again. Our good friend. We know he would Mr. be there. Clifton, yes. Yep, Mr. Clifton. Then someone I've never heard of, Nikolai Barashovsky from East 61st Street in New York. And then Beveridge Webster, who was a pianist, uh, who I, I had a former colleague in Florida who studied with Earl Wilde, who studied with Beveridge Webster. And so that's the reason I knew this name. Six degrees of yes. Beveridge Webster. <laughs> and I own a record of Beveridge Webster's recordings of the Schoenberg, Webern, and Berg piano music. So... He was that. And then also Douglas Moore was on there as well. So there were four people writing this. So and we talked about Douglas Moore the first episode. Yeah. We were discussing the foundation of this um, this prize and how it mm-hmm. came to be. So here he is showing back up. But there's a name missing that we would have expected to be there, and that's the previous winner. Yes. Charles so where's Charles E. Ives? <laughs> I guess if prizes are for boys, <laughs> right. he's not going to be giving one out. But it is interesting that he doesn't come back and fulfill mm. the duty that most of the previous winners had seemed to in a pattern. It's not spelled out anywhere, but seemed to have become a pattern that the previous winner would come back and would say, this is who I think should get the prize after I yeah. win it. Yeah. So it's fascinating that they brought in Douglas Moore as the as that voice. Who will come back to in a couple of years? or Yeah, yeah. yeah. comes back to win his own. Right. And we're going to see this is a, mm. a, a very tight-knit community. Ives is kind of the outlier yeah. of people who are able to receive this prize. That it very much is an old boys, old New England boys club. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and to that point, let's see what were the pieces that were so the uh, selected, or the pieces that were possibly going to be selected. So we have Pistons, Third Symphony is the winner, of course. Second piece was Roger Sessions, Second Symphony. So Roger Sessions, a Yale student and Yale composer. Good friends with Charles Ives. Yes. Uh, Robert Palmer. Hmm. I thought Robert Palmer was, uh, didn't he do uh, uh, Addicted to Love? No, not thinking of that. <laughs> Wasn't he an 80s singer? He was, he's uh, a singer. Yes, Robert Palmer's Quartet for Piano and Strings. Ernst Krennick's Symphony Number no. 4. Another Walter Piston piece, Symphonic Suite, and then David Diamond's Symphony Number no. Four, which I like a lot. That's one of my favorite pieces of his. So, kind of an interesting group there. Very New England again, very mm-hmm. East Coast. Uh, and they said about Walter Piston's Symphony Number no. Three, this work, probably the finest of the distinguished American composer, combines mastery of form and beauty of orchestration with expressiveness and spontaneity. We'll see if we agree with that. In the opinion of the music jury, it far surpasses the other works seriously considered, which are named below in order of preference. So this was the winner. All right. Well, maybe it's time for us to dive in a little bit. Behind the Notes. So let's go behind the notes here and discuss this piece a bit. It's in four movements, and it's... uh, a slow, fast, slow, fast, 
format. The first movement is in 5-4, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, very surprising. Yeah, surprising. But it's so slow that it doesn't feel like 5-4. No, no. And it's got these three slow, draggy, I would say, <laughs> uh, themes that kind of are spun out. And then it's followed by the scherzo with trio, and then a very slow variations movement. Now, we listened to the recording, uh, the actually ori the original recording of Kusevitsky in Boston, and it was very slow. And then the finale is interpreted by Howard Pollock, who wrote a lot about Walter Piston, wrote a book about him, uh, as a celebration of the end of the Second World War. So it's very celebratory and triumphant. It is. Yeah. Let's, let's start with that first movement. Uh, that first movement that has the three themes, as you've called them, which I think is exactly how you call them. I wouldn't call them melodies because they're not things that are going to stick in our minds. No. So a typical sit down and listen and you're not going to walk away whistling the themes from the first movement of Walter Piston. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> they, they're meandering, um, mostly moving kind of stepwise up and down. Yeah. Sort of, uh, there, well, uh, one of the themes, or the one that keeps coming back, is seems to be based on a trichord. It seems to be based on a three-note group that you do hear quite a bit. But then it's interspersed with chromaticism. I call it just meandering chromaticism. Da 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 dee, da da da. It doesn't really seem to go anywhere. Uh, it's kind of directionless. But then, as we find, as one of the clips we're going to play, I believe, you'll have this strange cadence. He's interested. Hey. Yeah, he gets to the cadence. It's like he decides it's time to finish. So I'm going to end on this grand cadence. So actually, maybe we can listen to the the final, the finale, the end of this first movie. Big C major chord <laughs> you there. You don't huh? expect that. Where's no, that going to come from? No, didn't And I, I think you see this throughout the entire, not just this movement, but throughout the entire symphony, that these moments where he just comes to an arrival point, and then sometimes they seem to come out of nowhere, as this one mm -hmm. does. Mm -hmm. Second movement, I think, is, uh, in our listening at least, a little bit more successful. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it also is a little bit more Copeland esque. Mm hmm. That's where we were talking about that Nadia Boulanger school, yeah. but much more the kind of wide open spaces, the excitement of the... The rhythmic the stuff. Rhythmic, yeah, the interplay yeah. of the rhythmic. So maybe we'll listen to a little bit of that second movement of the symphony. That's that when we were listening to it, I was thinking a little bit about Bernstein. It reminded me of yeah. the first symphony of Bernstein, the uh, Jeremiah symphony and the movement Profanation, which mm -hmm. has that kind of rhythmic stuff in it. And so it's a little more interesting, I'd say, to listen to. Yeah. The third movement, the variation. That's damning with faint praise. <laughs> <laughs> a little more interesting. Beautifully crafted. Yes, beautifully crafted. That yeah. third movement is slow and i think the word you used when we were listening to it was turgid turgid <laughs> yes yes a good sat word for very moving through molasses very slow and yeah tedious and in some ways it's kind of like the first movement in that it seems that you can't hear the variations as well just because you can't latch onto a melody and hear how he's changing it. Right. Um, instead, you end up listening, and I think this is probably, for, for me, the best thing about this piece uh, is the way that he uses the orchestra. 
in that you have a melody that will begin in the strings and then it will jump up into the woodwinds and then he'll change the color of the woodwinds then it'll move down mm -hmm. to the brass. And so it's really interesting to listen to how masterfully he can use the, the instruments and make all these different tone colors. But the material that he's dealing yeah. with is just not that engaging to me. No, no. And so we, plus it which seemed, it was just very long. Oh, that slow movement was very, like a hundred variations or something. But then we, did, I, we got to the last movement and it had more of that same Copeland-esque kind of rhythmic kind of thing there. It was C major based, sort of tonally based around C and lively. Uh, had a lot of counterpoint. Counterpoint. Uh, Piston was known as a very good contrapuntalist, and there's fugal aspects in this piece too, and, and maybe in this movement too. Uh, so it is expertly crafted. Certainly. <laughs> well, I think we can listen to that a little bit. That fugue from the fourth movement. So maybe we can play that now. So this is exactly what I think of whenever you at the beginning were saying he's an academic composer, someone who's going to throw a fugue in here just to kind of so say, look mm. what I can do. Isn't this amazing? Do you think, well, Copeland, he liked counterpoint, right? <laughs> he likes counterpoint, but I think to me it's like, okay, so putting this on the same program as Brahms. Yeah. It's oh, the that, same kind of thing. That yeah. it's, it's here, I know my history, I know my counterpoint, I can do this, and I'll put it into this piece. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's that kind of tradition that I, I mm. see him connected to, and Brahms got the same slur put against him that he was an academic composer during his right. lifetime. Right. So in my head, that's kind of where it goes. And then listening to it, it's like, oh, there's a few. Yeah. Not surprising. No, no, that's true. It, and to that end, it also reminds me of uh, Schumann, who has that, Absolutely. it really is very similar, that same kind of American-esque, Fugal writing, and uh, there was a great article that we'll link to by Carol Oja, the who's actually at Harvard, uh, and writes about Piston and how he viewed himself in his music not as an American composer but as an international composer. And he said, "Well, when you talk to an American composer, what's their background and interest? Well, they like German music, they like Italian music, they like French. It's not just American. Why should I sound just American?" And so I think you can tell, well, let's use a fugue because that's something that Germans use. Or let's use this uh, rhythmic stuff that would be in French music. And That also seems to be common among a lot of these composers who are winning the Pulitzer. Mm -hmm. That kind of international stance. Yeah. Ives is a, a huge exception. Yes, yes. Um, and Copeland to some degree, but often Copeland is doing that because there's a program associated with it. So he's writing Appalachian Spring because it's for a dance and it's representing this kind of uh, Americana story. Right. But here when we talk about Hansen, we talk about Schumann, we talk about now Walter Piston, we're talking about composers who do view themselves as an international composer, that they're mm -hmm. not just writing for niche Americana. And I think it's because at that time, American music is still just kind of spreading its wings in the classical realm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you look at his list of students, Elliot Carter would very much very take much up that about. kind of mantle. And Absolutely. Now Bernstein... Different, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, certainly much more of an American bent, but even he tried to be a European composer too, in some ways, and certainly was a conductor of great, great conductor of, of European music. Absolutely. So, yeah, very interesting uh, mixture of things. And 
what what they were trying what image they were trying to portray and this symphony t- sounds it's got a, it is kind of international sounding if you it will is. yeah uh, it is very american sounding in some ways with its rhythmic aspects but yet it's very european so kind of a, a good mixture international piece all right well, let's turn our attention to what we think about this piece and where it might land in its post pulitzer life Hit or miss. So, hit or miss, we have to decide what we're going to say about this third symphony of Walter Piston. So, I kind of know where you're going to go yeah, with this. this is kind of a miss for me. Mm-hmm. It was one of those that I went in in a very blank slate, and there are moments that I really enjoyed. That second movement, I think, is yeah. fantastic. I really enjoyed the second movement. But I think as a whole, it doesn't seem to hold together the way I would want a symphony to hold together. Um, it's like he had a bunch of great ideas and put them together and said, that's a symphony. Yeah, yeah. What about yourself? Uh, yeah, I would say the same thing. If this was my first introduction to Walter Piston, I would probably not listen to anything of his again. Uh, it just doesn't have a lot of, I don't know, it's very monochromatic. It just mm. seems like very blah. And it's competent, well done. Competent. Yes, it's competent. Competent and blah. Okay, I think I know where you are today. Yeah, I <laughs> but we do get to come back to Piston. We do, and I'm hoping I have higher hopes for Symphony Number no. Seven because that will, you know, that's more time has passed, and and he's becoming even more famous. So maybe it will work out. Uh, but right now, I'd have to give it a miss, unfortunately. So I think history upholds our assessment. So there are not that many recordings of it. We can kind of point to Howard Hansen recorded it with the Eastman Symphony. It was recorded in 1999. Uh, Janos recorded it then. But it's not like it's regularly performed. It's not like it's on a regular concert season. We don't expect every year to see, oh, someone's doing Brahms <laughs> 4 and Piston 3. It no. just doesn't happen. No. Maybe we'll see a different story when we get to later symphonies of, of Walter Piston. Do you think, again, some of this might be because of the, the lack of interest of, in the fact that he was not an innovator in particular I ways that some of it history is not kind to composers who are just you know very very good but not pushing anything or not yeah we tend to re- recognize the innovators or those who kind of sum up an era mm. so we play bach bach wasn't an innovator right. in many ways but he definitely summed up an era and did just the, to the best of his ability best mm-hmm. of almost anyone's ability but when we talk about someone like piston he's not really summing up an era yeah he's performing um you know the the work a day, yeah. as we said. Yeah. Uh, compositional life. He's there. He's doing great work. Uh, it just isn't capturing the imagination of people. No. I, one quote that was in the Carol Oja article said that he wrote for performers in mind, or he wrote with performers in mind. So I think he it was, that, that goes to the kind of Hindemithian practicality yeah. of his music, and he wanted to be played. It doesn't. It's not. The symphony is not terribly demanding, I don't think. It, there's parts, but it's not as demanding as Appalachian Spring is right. or, or Ives even. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's not much else to say. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, well-written, but just doesn't really capture a lot. Well, maybe next time. Yes. <laughs> moving on to one of my favorite American composers. We gave you Ives, so I get the next one. That's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links in a short bibliography. You can read more about Walter Piston. We'll link those articles that we mentioned so you can read a little bit more about what other people have been saying about Walter Piston. 
Also, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers. Links and trivia that we'll put up there between episodes. And finally, join us next episode. We'll be exploring the first and only film score, actually, to win the Pulitzer Prize, Virgil Thompson's Louisiana Story. That's hard to believe. I can't believe it's only amazing. one. 1949. Pul- wow. And since then, not a film score is one. Wow. Well, I'm very excited. I'm going to watch the movie so I can be ready and see what it's all about. All right. Thanks you for listening. And until next time, keep listening. Keep listening.